0: recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania.org. Today is Friday, September 5th, 2014. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. Well, Melissa and I moved down here about five weeks ago to Panama City, Florida. A lot of people were asking me about my vehicle. It, it needs tires. That's all that's wrong with it. it. It gave us a hard time coming down. The... Um, Place where it is, it is nice <laughs> it'll do it's not permanent we're still looking for a permanent residence other than those silly little challenges of everyday life we praise yahweh that we are blessed in every way and it all is going well the 2 seed line program from last week explaining 2 seed line part 26 the player on the website kept resetting itself after about 8 minutes and, and I sat and played with that for a while today. No one could um, really listen to the program because of that, because it would just reset itself and restart after about eight minutes. Evidently, that's because there was one spot on the program with too many seconds of silence, of dead air, Perhaps I can start being a little more diligent about dead air on my podcast and, and removing the dead air from from the recordings before I post them. That's possible. I repaired the program from last week, explaining 2C Mind Part 26, the Devil and Satan. I repaired that and uploaded the new file today, so it'll work now. Of course, the um, the players on the website are convenient. They're convenient if you only have a tablet or a telephone especially an Android device, something you don't want to store a lot of files on. But if you have a computer, the best way to listen to the programs is always to um, download the program and load it into your local media player, whatever operating system you have. Probably Windows Media Player it is the most common. Edgar Steele died in federal prison I really didn't want to mention Edgar Steele. I, I, I'm sort of purposely detached from him, from his case. I, I mean, I know he's a um, well-liked individual in some circles, and, and maybe he was fighting the, the, the good fight for our race for a long time. I don't know if that's why he's in prison. I'm not going to comment on the, the, the merits of this case or anything like that. It, it's unfortunate that he died in prison. Evidently, he had health problems, that's the early report, and, and um, a lack of medical attention in federal prison. I can um, praise Yahweh and, and offer thanks that I made it through 12 years of federal prison without seeing the doctors at all. You, um, in, in that kind of predicament, you, you have to keep yourself in shape. And, and eat right, and be very careful about you, what, what you eat. I know that that's still no guarantee that you're not going to get sick, but the providence of Yahweh God has his hand in that also. I've seen the federal prison system kill other good men. I had a good friend, Steve Donahue, who maybe back in 2004 or 2005 – died in federal prison. He had a, um, a lung disease, which he contracted in federal prison, which from what he said was caused by breathing in um, pigeon dung and, and refuse from pigeons in, in a confined area. And he had that disease. And, and from what I saw over about 15 or 18 months that I knew the man at the end of his life, from what I saw, the federal prison system killed him, and they did it through a combination of apathy and incompetence. They didn't purpose... It wasn't a conspiracy to kill the guy, but they did it through apathy and, and, and their own incompetence. The federal prison system hires... Um, they hired disgraced doctors or, or, or um, failed doctors as physicians' assistants. And they basically give men that have no medical license the license to practice medicine on prisoners. And and I'm sure that the federal budget, that they don't have to pay these people as much as they pay real doctors. But the, the, the people that they hired to play doctor in federal prisons are pure scum. And I've talked to several of them. With that being said, we're going to commence with our presentation of Paul's Epistle to the Romans. Romans part 20, Romans chapter 15. In Romans chapter 14, we saw Paul discuss some of the things, some of the various things that early Christians already disagreed upon in his time. But these particular disagreements were not limited to Roman Christians. As we noted from 1 Corinthians chapters 8 and chapter 10, These disagreements were also among the Dorian Greeks. They were also among the Colossians, which is evident in Colossians chapter 2. And these disagreements were apart from the disputes over various aspects of the law, which were often being thrust forth by the Judaizers, such as those which concerned circumcision, which we see Paul write about in Galatians. From Paul's words in Romans chapter 14, as well as in his epistles to the Colossians and the Corinthians, it can be determined that early Christians were at odds concerning the keeping of Sabbaths and feasts and whether it was acceptable to eat food which had been sacrificed to idols. Resolving this dispute, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul expressed the opinion that one may indeed eat any food sold in the markets, so long as one did not worry about the source of the food. However, if it was made known that the food had been sacrificed to an idol, then it was better for one to abstain for the benefit of Christian brethren. Paul's answer in Romans was not dissimilar, but it was not as elaborate as his answer to the Corinthians. It must be kept in mind, in respect to the moral laws of Yahweh, which are immutable. Rather, these disputes were only in respect to certain things in the law, which were related to the regulation of community life handed down by Yahweh to the children of Israel. What was barred or permitted on a Sabbath? The feasts, when to celebrate the feasts, and what deemed foods to be profane or sanctified, were things related to the ritual laws and the Levitical priesthood which was done away with in Christ, Hebrews chapter 7. The moral laws expressed in the commandments of Yahweh are not negotiable, and Paul upheld them wherever he felt it necessary to discuss them. Paul considered those to be worried about idolatry and the foods they would eat or the foods they would not eat, to be weak in the faith. Likewise, Paul considered those who worried about which days they should set aside for God to be weak in the faith. He contrasted these these people with those who did not worry about food and who would live every day for God. But with this, Paul explained that the weak should not condemn the confident, and neither should the confident despise the weak, but that every man should seek to please God according to his own conscience. However, Paul also explained that those who were confident in the faith should nevertheless regulate their own behavior for the benefit of the weak and not to offend their brethren on account of food, because it is better not to eat than to offend one's brother. The underlying thread in Paul's advice is that in order to avoid belaboring disputes, such as those over food and feast days, Christians should voluntarily act in accordance with the law so that they do not offend their brethren. Once it is understood that Christians should act or should volunteer to act in compliance with the law, it may be perceived that the law is the proper and authoritative mediator of Christian disagreement. And that when, when all Christians agree with the Word of God, then the disagreements which they may have with one another are neutralized. Paul explained that those who were confident in Christ could eat whatever food they wished or celebrate whatever day they desired. This is true because Israel was freed from those laws in Christ and are under the law of liberty found in the grace of Christ. But if one's brother differs and seeks to act in accordance with the law, then unless one offend his brother, the Christian should be willing to comply with the law concerning these things. That's the gist of Paul's arguments in 1 Corinthians 10 and in Romans chapter 14. This raises other questions, such as where Christians draw the line concerning things such as circumcision, another ritual, and in its own sense, a sacrifice. Of course, Paul addressed these things elsewhere, Galatians, Hebrews. I would offer my own opinion based on the gospel and on the epistles of Paul. Whatever a Levitical priest performed for the children of Israel is abolished in Christ because Christ is the new high priest of Israel under the old Melchizedek priesthood, which did not employ such things. Paul explained much of this in Hebrews chapter 7. Paul's resolution of these disputes among the Romans continues and concludes here in Romans chapter fifteen from verse one. Moreover, we are obligated, we who are who are able to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us must make amends with him near to us for that which is good towards building. The Greek phrase, pros oikodomain, is literally towards building. In the King James Version, it is translated often to edification, and that's fine. It may be elaborated for the purpose of constructive improvement. That's not quite literal, but it's certainly proper. Each of us must make amends to him near to us, to our kinsmen to our racial kinsmen, the proper sense of the word neighbor, for that which is good for the purpose of constructive improvement, improving the body of Christ. The confident Christian understands that there is no condemnation for those in Christ, knowing that they must coexist with the world. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. However, speaking of Christian brethren, who did not have such an understanding. Paul said, you must not with your food ruin that person for whose benefit Christ had died. Paul then said in the verse concluding that chapter, Romans 14, but he that makes a distinction, if then he eats, has been condemned, because it is not from faith, and all which is not from faith is is an error. If you differ with your brother over food, and you cause him to eat. You are causing him to eat with condemnation because his eating is hypocrisy. However, if you differ with your brother over food and you concede to the law and concede not to eat, you are doing better because you are not putting such a trap in your brother's path. If he chooses to abide in the law, we should choose to abide in the law with him, not trying to cause him to break it. With this, it is evident that even though Israel has been released from the law, and they have, as Paul says in Romans chapter chapter 3, we should nevertheless endeavor to establish the law. It is better to choose to keep the law for the benefit of the brethren. This is exemplary of how Christians should bear the infirmities of the weak, by conceding to the law of God, supporting their brethren, and making amends with them for the purpose of building up the body of Christ, rather than by tearing it down, by sowing it with divisions. Like, oh, it's not his fault that his great-grandmother was a squat monster. He's a nice guy. Well you better concede to the law that it's good and exclude that bastard from the congregation rather than sowing the body of Christ with divisions. Christians are not judged by the law, but they concede that the law is good and seek to establish the law. Romans chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Romans fifteen three. Indeed, even Christ, has pleased not himself. But, as it is written, the reproaches of those casting reproaches upon you have fallen upon me. The reproaches of those who hated Yahweh fell upon the Christ. Here Paul quotes from Psalm 69, verse 9, where David, who was also a man anointed by God, said this same thing concerning himself, even though the psalm is also a messianic prophecy relating to Christ. In other words, all these dual prophecies in the psalms, they are dual prophecies because they had application in David's immediate life, and they were prophecies of the events of the life of Christ. From Psalm 69, from verse 6, Let not them that wait on thee, O Yahweh, God of hosts, be ashamed for my sake. Let not those that seek thee be confounded for my sake, O God of Israel. Because for thy sake I have borne reproach, shame has covered my face. I am become a stranger to my brethren and an alien to my mother's children. For the zeal of thine house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproached Thee are fallen upon me. Like both David and Christ, Christians should seek to please God and not man. However, when choosing to please God, those who hate God hate Christians as well. Verse 4. Now whatever things have been written before have been written for our instruction, so that through patient endurance... And the calling of the writings, we may have expectation. And the Codex Vaticanus adds the words of encouragement. Paul's Christianity does not dismiss the Old Testament writings, but rather he insists that Christians employ them for their instruction. The word rendered a calling here in the phrase calling of the writings is the Greek word paraklesis. And the King James Version rendered this word as comfort in this verse, that we have through patient endurance and the comfort of the writings, we may have expectation. The word paraclasis is a calling to one's aid, a summons, a calling upon, an appealing, an entreaty, a deprecation, an exhortation, an address, and it can mean, for those reasons, encouragement, according to Liddell and Scott. While the word bears the connotation of encouragement in certain contexts, and for that reason, it may at times be rendered as comfort, as the King James Version often does, the primary meaning of the word paraclesis as calling or summons, cannot be omitted from the thought which the Word represents. From Isaiah chapter 52, from another Messianic prophecy, from verse 8, thy watchmen shall fill up the voice, with the voice together shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye, when Yahweh shall bring again Zion, Break forth into joy, sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem, for Yahweh has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Yahweh has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. For this reason, the coming of Christ is called the consolation of Israel, for Yahweh has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem, as we see in Isaiah 52. In Luke chapter 2, from the King James Version, from 2.25, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was upon him, And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, who is the consolation of Israel. The word which the King James Version rendered as consolation in that passage of Luke is the same word, Greek word paraklesis, which we see here. The corresponding Greek verb is parakaleo. Parakaliel means to call to one, to call to aid, to call in, to send for, or to summon. In a secondary sense, the word means to call to, as if to exhort, to cheer, to encourage, to comfort, or to console. Where in the King James Version, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1 proclaims, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. The word for comfort in the Septuagint Greek is this verb, parakaleo. From Isaiah chapter 40 in the Septuagint, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith God. Speak ye priests to the heart of Jerusalem. Comfort her, for her humiliation is accomplished. Her sin is put away, for she is received of the Lord's hand double the amount of her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight the paths of our God. Here in Isaiah 40, we see the calling to or the exhortation, which is often translated as comfort or consolation. Therefore, we see the comfort or the consolation of the children of Israel directly connected to another Messianic prophecy. So the consolation of Israel, as Christ is called, in the Old Testament is the consolation of Israel, those same people, Israel, that Simeon proclaims in the New Testament. Christians who are properly Those of the dispersed children of Israel who have heeded the promised calling of Christ have their expectation, as Paul describes here, through the calling of the writings, meaning the law and the prophets. The universalists deny the Old Testament because they do not understand or do not want to believe who it is that the writings call. Only the children of Israel were promised this calling, this exhortation, this comfort in the law and the prophets, to the exclusion of all others. Since the word and the law of God were only for the children of Israel, no other people were expected to have the comfort or consolation of the scriptures. And no other people could have those things because no other people could could force themselves into the prophetic context. Verse 5, Romans 15. And the Yahweh of patience and exhortation, that same word, paraklesis, it's consolation here in the King James, would give to you the same, to have understanding with one another concerning Yahshua Christ, the consolation of Israel, in order that with one accord In one voice, you should honor the God and Father of our Prince, Yahshua Christ, on which account you must assist one another, just as also Christ has assisted you for the honor of Yahweh. Some manuscripts have assisted us, but that's okay. The last clause of verse 5 may have been rendered to have understanding with one another in accordance with Yahshua Christ. From the Septuagint, from Proverbs chapter 3. My son, forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments. For length of days and long life and peace shall they add to thee. From the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, the words of Christ, if you love me, keep my commandments. Same message as the writer of Proverbs to his son. And again, from Proverbs chapter 10. He that winks with his eyes deceitfully procures griefs for man. But he that reproves boldly is a peacemaker. To reprove boldly is to encourage your brethren to keep the laws of Yahweh. The only way that Christians can all come into accord and be of one mind is to do the same. If you love me, keep my commandments. From Amos, chapter 3. Hear this word that Yahweh has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Christians, should all agree with Yahweh their God. The reason for the punishment of Israel was so that Yahweh may chastise his people, bringing them into agreement with him in Christ. This is the meaning of the quote from Isaiah forty-five twenty-three, which Paul offered in relation to these things in Romans chapter 14, where he said, quoting Isaiah, "'I live,' says the prince." that to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess to God. Christians are freed from the judgments of the law, which is what Paul had explained in Romans chapter 7, that Christ died to free Israel from the law. However, Christ said at John 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Yet that same Christ warned in Matthew chapter 12, verse 7, but if you had known what this means, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Quoting from Hosea 6.6. 6. What this means, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Therefore, Christians are exhorted to have mercy on their brethren as Christ has mercy on on them all. So Paul, concerning the disputes over relatively minor matters of the law, which were among these first century Christians, wrote in Romans 14.10, Now why do you judge your brother? Or then, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of Yahweh. In that last chapter of Romans, Paul told those who were stronger in the faith not to despise the weak who clung to the law regarding the eating of profane foods and other other I'm sorry of profane foods and other elements of the law from which Israel had been released Paul then told those who were stronger in the faith that they should keep the law not eating those things or doing anything which would offend a brother if the brother insisted on keeping the law Here Paul tells those same people that they should help the weak and make amends towards building, assisting one another as Christ assists us, which is through his mercy for us. It's not because we deserve it. The underlying theme in this discourse is that Christians assist one another and build the body of Christ through brotherly love and a voluntary compliance to the law of God. Verse 8. Therefore I say, Joshua Christ came to be a minister of circumcision in behalf of the truth of Yahweh for the confirmation of the promises of the fathers. A minister of circumcision. The purpose of the Christ was to introduce the gospel of salvation to the remnant nation of Judea which had kept the law and the prophets. And then to be cut off for it, as it says in Daniel chapter 9, as Yahweh previously announced through Daniel. Yahweh purposely left a remnant of Judah for the very purpose of introducing the Messiah to Israel at the appointed time, meaning to all of the Israelites of the ancient dispersions. The transgression of Israel was not complete until the Messiah was introduced And was rejected by the remnant in Judea, at which time the old covenant had finally come to an end. As Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 foretells, where it says, Seventy weeks have determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, the transgression of Israel, to make an end of sins, meaning to forgive Israel for all those sins by fulfilling the law, releasing Israel from the law in the manner in which Paul explained in Romans chapter 7, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, because once Israel is released from the judgments of the law, God may exercise his mercy towards Israel and to bring in everlasting righteousness, all Israel will be saved, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy, the sum total of the prophets is in Christ. Even though there are many other prophecies regarding his people, the sum total of the prophets, their purpose or being, is in Christ. Paul says here that the gospel of Christ, was for the confirmation of the promises of the fathers. Just as it is also professed in Luke chapter 1, where it records the words of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, in verse 68. Blessed be Yahweh. God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, which had been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, that he would grant to us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Paul is teaching the fulfillments of the promises of the Old Testament to the seed of Abraham in the nations that he preached the gospel to in the New Testament. Paul and Luke, to the greatest extent, demonstrate the fulfillment of covenant theology. And the Paul bashers should all be thoroughly ashamed of themselves, every one of them. Verse 9, Romans 15. And the nations, for the sake of mercy, honor Yahweh, just as it is written, for this reason, I will profess you among the nations, and I will sing of your name. And again it says, Rejoice, nations, with his people. In verse 9 here, Paul cites a passage from a song of David, which is found in both 2 Samuel chapter 22, from verse 50, and in Psalm 18, at verse 49. From Psalm 18, I will read from the New American Standard Bible, which does not abuse the Hebrew word for nation so much as the King James Version does. From verse 46, Yahweh lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who executes vengeance for me and subdues peoples under me. He delivers me from mine enemies. Surely, Thou dost lift me up above those who rise up against me. Thou dost rescue me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to thee among the nations, O Yahweh, and I will sing praises to thy name. He gives great deliverance to his king and shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. In that psalm, speaking of the children of Israel and their enemies. The same purpose we see in Luke chapter 1, which we just cited from the words of Zecharias. That psalm is awaiting another fulfillment in Israel, along with the prophecy of Zecharias that we have a Messiah to save us from our enemies and the hand of all that hate us. In verse 10, Paul quotes from Deuteronomy. 32, where he says, and again it says, Rejoice, nations, with his people. Here, so that we may understand the original context, we shall read part of Deuteronomy chapter 32, this time from the King James Version, from verse 35. To me belongs vengeance and recompense, their foot shall slide in due time. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. Just a brief departure from our text. We see in our, we see Paul quote from Psalm 1849, the words of David about the people, about him professing the name of Yahweh among the nations and rejoicing because... Yahweh destroyed David's enemies. Here we see Paul cite Moses commanding the people, the nations with the people of God to rejoice because Yahweh destroyed or has given a promise to destroy Israel's enemies. We see the same thing in Luke chapter 1. This has not changed, that we should be delivered from the hand of our enemies to perform the mercy promised to our fathers the mainstream the mainstream interpretations of the Christian Bible are a complete failure by missing the entire racial message back to Deuteronomy 32:36 for Yahweh shall judge his people and repent himself for his servants when he sees that their power is gone, and there is none shut up or left. When he shall say, where are their gods, their rock, in whom they trusted, which did eat the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings, let them arise up and help you and be your protection. And of course they can, right? See now that I, even I am he, and there is no god with me, I kill and make alive, I wound and I heal, neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and say, I live forever. If I wet my glittering sword and mine hand take hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to mine enemies and will reward them that hate me. Luke chapter 1. And Paul is teaching this by quoting these passages. I will make mine arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh, and that with the blood of the slain and of the captives from the beginning of revenges upon the enemy. Rejoice, O ye nations, with his people. That's the section of this passage that Paul quotes here in Romans. For he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance to his adversaries and will be merciful unto his land and to his people. And Moses came and spoke all the words of this song in the ears of the people, he and Hosea, the son of Nun. Paul is not quoting these passages out of their original context. And we see these same things were taught in the Gospel of Luke. Rather, the purpose of the Christ as it it is expressed in the words of Zechariah quoted in chapter 1 of the Gospel of Luke is the same purpose of Yahweh expressed by Moses and recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Salvation is for the children of Israel in their respective nations. And on their behalf, Yahweh God will eventually destroy his enemies. This is the assistance Paul refers to here in Romans. As Luke records, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. When the children of Israel are obedient to Christ, they will indeed be saved from all of their enemies. In Isaiah chapter 14, it is evident that the mercy of Yahweh was a matter of prophecy for the children of Israel of the captivity, where it says... For Yahweh will have mercy on Jacob and will yet choose Israel and set them in their own land. And the strangers shall be joined with them, and they shall cleave to the house of Jacob. And the people shall take them and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel shall possess them in the land of Yahweh for servants and handmaids. And they shall take them captives. Whose captives they were, and they shall rule over their oppressors. Now, the strangers here, joined to Israel, are defined in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 2, as the nations of people who took Israel captive. So we can't just apply this to anybody. Only these strangers can only be the people of the nations that took Israel captive in the days of Isaiah. And that refers primarily to the Assyrians and the Chaldeans and the people who were in league with them. This began its fulfillment in 612 BC when the Scythians, who were descendants of the captives of Israel, along with the Medes, had destroyed the cities of Assyria and according to diodorus siculus at that time the scythians took a large number of both medes and assyrians as slaves and they relocated they relocated the medes to the north of the black sea along the tanais river and they relocated the assyrians they took captive to that part of anatolia which was later known as pontus which is along the southern coast of the Black Sea. That's in Diodorus Siculus's Library of History, Book 2, Chapter 43. The Parthians, a tribe of those same Scythians, later subjected both the Persians and the Chaldeans, as well as most of what was formerly known as Assyria. So that that passage in Isaiah 14 is fulfilled in that very precise manner. Again, Paul quotes Moses, where he said in verse 10, Rejoice, O ye nations, with his people. Very often, the King James Version unjustly rendered the word for nations as Gentiles or as heathen. It is telling that the King James Version did not write Gentiles or heathen for nations in Deuteronomy 32:43. They actually wrote nations, which is the literal translation of the word goyim. The nations to which Moses referred in that passage, where he talks about Yahweh avenging Israel for their enemies, taking vengeance on the enemies of Israel. Moses said, Rejoice, O ye nations, with his people, for he, meaning God, will avenge the blood of his servants. Those nations to which Moses referred to in that passage can only be the twelve tribes of Israel, which were indeed individual nations at that time, although they were consolidated under one government. They had already been prophesied to become many nations in Genesis chapter 48, Genesis chapter 49, and elsewhere. So where Moses uses that word nations, in Deuteronomy thirty-two forty-three, he means to refer to the nations of the tribes of Israel, even at that early time. In Romans chapter 4, Paul explained at length that the seed of Abraham was to become many nations, and that they were to be the heirs of the promises of Yahweh. Paul said in part, from verse 16, Therefore, from of the faith, that in accordance with favor, then the promise is to be certain to all the offspring, not to that of the law only, but also to that of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, just as it is written, that a father of many nations I have made you, before Yahweh, whom he trusted, who raises the dead to life and calls things, not existing as existing who contrary to expectation in expectation believed for which he would become a father of many nations according to the declaration thus your offspring will be and the faith of Abraham was the belief that that statement would be true The children of Israel did indeed become many nations, and they are the nations to whom Paul brought the gospel. They are the nations with his people, meaning Yahweh's people, Israel, that Moses had also intended by that statement which Paul quoted, and that's why he's quoting it. Paul is teaching Israel identity throughout his writing. Verse 11, and again, Paul is still, he's still quoting scriptures, these scriptures which were for our instruction that we may have the hope of the consolation of Israel. And again, praise Yahweh, all the nations, and commend him, all the people. This quote from Psalm 117, a psalm of only two verses, is also exclusive to the children of Israel, where it says, Oh, praise Yahweh, all ye nations. Praise him, all ye people. For his merciful kindness is great towards us. And the truth of Yahweh endures forever. Praise ye Yahweh. Paul is teaching The fulfillment of these Old Testament writings for the children of Israel, which he says were written for our instruction. He's teaching fulfillment theology. Verse 12. And again, Isaiah says, There shall be the root of Jesse and he is arising to be ruler of nations. Upon him the nations have expectation. Here Paul is citing Isaiah chapter 11, specifically from verses 1 and 10 of that chapter. The word for expectation in the Christian New Testament here may have been rendered as hope or trust. Brenton rendered the same Greek word as trust in his version of the Septuagint. The King James, based upon the Masoretic text, has a verb which is seek instead of a verb meaning trust. But Paul was certainly citing the Septuagint. Here we shall read the passage from the King James Version at greater length, from Isaiah 11.1. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of Yahweh, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of Yahweh. He shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, And with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked, and to skip over to verse 10. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles, and of course that word should have been translated as nations, and the context is limited to the people of the children of Israel, and his rest shall be glorious. To it shall the nation seek, and his rest shall be glorious. And it shall come to pass in that day that Yahweh shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria, and from Egypt, and from Pathros, and from Cush, and from Elam, and from Shinar, which is Babylonia, and from Hamas, And from the islands of the sea, in other words, everywhere to which, every place to which they were originally scattered, that's where the children of Israel were originally dispersed. That doesn't mean that they stayed in those places. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. There aren't any Gentiles in that passage. The King James translation is only unfortunate. In Isaiah chapter 11, the King James Version unjustly translated the same Hebrew word goyim as Gentiles in verse 10, but correctly translated it as nations in verse 12. Although in the context of Isaiah, these two things are certainly the same entity. In and Septuagint, he did the same thing with the equivalent Greek word ethnos in the same places. The ensign is Christ, and the promise is to regather the dispersed children of Israel of the ancient captivities. The nations which have expectation in Christ are those same children of Israel. From Joel chapter 3, from verse 16, Yahweh also shall roar, out of Zion, and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth shall shake. But Yahweh will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. Paul is telling the Romans these things and quoting these scriptures which he says were written for our instruction because he is relating the very fulfillment of the prophecies. The regathering of the nations of the children of dispersed Israel in Christ. The children of Israel were not supposed to turn around and attempt to share the word of God with his enemies or with aliens. Verse 13. Now may Yahweh fill you of that hope. Why would you have that hope if you're not one of the children of Israel? because it only applies to the children of Israel. Now may Yahweh fill you with that hope with all joy and peace and confidence until you overflow with expectation in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Codex Claro-Montanus wants the words in confidence there. The Codex Vaticanus reads this verse quite differently, and I'm going to recite it. Now Yahweh now may Yahweh fully assure you of that hope, with all joy and peace In confidence, you are in the expectation in the power of the Holy Spirit. Recording the words of Mary, in relation to the purpose of Christ, Luke wrote in chapter 1 of his Gospel, in verse 54, He has in his servant Israel. In other words, he has helped his servant Israel. Come to the aid of Israel, the purpose of the Messiah, he is hoping his servant Israel, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. Paul is teaching the fulfillment of these prophecies, promises, and is not teaching anything contrary, and there are two witnesses. Right there in Luke chapter 1, that the purpose of the Christ was exclusively to come to the aid of the children of Israel, to come for salvation of the children of Israel, and to fulfill the promises made to the ancient patriarchs of Israel. From Jeremiah chapter 17, from verse 13, O Yahweh, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed, and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth, because they have forsaken Yahweh, the fountain of living waters, as Christ claims to be in John chapter 4. Yahweh and his Christ are the hope of Israel, as declared by the prophets, which we have just seen here from Joel and from Jeremiah. Therefore, Paul declared in Acts chapter 28, for the hope of Israel. I am bound with this chain. The Romans had a share in such hope because they too were of the seed of Abraham through the ancient Israelites. If you're not of the seed of Abraham through the ancient Israelites, you could go read the scriptures, but you won't find your expectation in it. You won't find your expectation in it because you're not included in it. Only the children of Israel have this hope. And Paul is teaching this by citing all of these very exclusive scriptures once we go back and see what Paul is quoting in the Old Testament, which he says is there for our instruction. That's why he's quoting it. Verse 14. Moreover, I am persuaded, my brethren, even I myself concerning you, that you are also full of goodness, being full of all knowledge, being able then to advise one another, as he's exhorting them in this chapter, to help one another with their weaknesses, their spiritual weaknesses, and their instruction in Scripture. The 3rd century papyrus, P46, and the Codex Claromontanus want the word my here, preceding brethren. However, it is clear that Paul refers to the Romans as his brethren. Oddly, these same two manuscripts, as well as the majority text, have the word brethren here. In verse 15, where all of the other ancient manuscripts do not have it. Yet it is clear that Paul is calling these Romans his brethren. And in Romans chapter 9, Paul defined his use of the term brethren for us, where he clarified it to mean his kinsmen in regards to the flesh, those who are Israelites, whose is the position of sons and the honor and the covenants and the legislation and the service and the promises. The Romans were also Israelites, as Paul has demonstrated throughout this epistle. Therefore the Romans were also his brethren. Verse 15, Now more daringly have I written to you, brethren, In part, that I am reminding you through the favor that has been given to me by Yahweh for me to be a minister of Yahshua Christ to the nations. And the Codex Vatican wants to phrase to the nations there. Performing the service of the good message of Yahweh in order that it be a presentation acceptable of the nations, having been sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Romans chapter 4, Paul defines the scope of his ministry to the nations as a ministry to those nations which are the heirs of the promises of Yahweh which were made to the seed of Abraham. These are the dispersed children of Israel and nobody else. In Romans chapter 9, From verse 24, Paul did the same thing again in a different manner, relating the nations who would be the recipients of his message to the prophecies of Hosea and Isaiah concerning the dispersed children of Israel. To remove the purpose of Paul's ministry from this context, which he himself has provided, is robbery and it is the creation of a lie." Therefore, Paul's ministry was certainly not to Gentiles, in the sense of non-Israelites, as the word is abused today. That's not the original definition of the word. The original definition of gentilis is to indicate somebody of the same race. Paul's ministry was only to Gentiles, in reference to those Gentiles, which the dispersed children of Israel became, according to the words of the prophets. As to the Greek phrase, there's a contention with my translation here. As to the Greek phrase, in order that it would be a presentation, ton presentation, of the nations you prospectus acceptable. The King James Version rendered this phrase that the offering up of the nations might be acceptable. I don't see anybody putting the nations on the altar. In fact, the nations Paul brought the gospel to, they were already on the altar, in the loins of Isaac. (laughs) The King James rendering that the offering up of the nations might be, not at all agree with the context of Paul's statements here. Paul is discussing the purpose of his mission in verse 15, performing the service of the good message. His mission is to bring that message to the nations. That which is sanctified, having been sanctified by the Holy Spirit, that which is sanctified, is a reference to the message of the gospel itself. As the Greek grammar insists that the verb refers back to the presentation itself. Paul is offering that gospel to the nations and hoping that the nations accept his offering or, as the Christogenian New Testament has it, his presentation. That Greek word, prosphora is an offering in the King James Version. In the Christogenian New Testament, it's rendered as presentation. The word prosphora is literally a bringing to. The nations aren't bringing anything to God. A bringing to, an applying, an application. It refers to that which is brought, in this case, the gospel, which was sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul clearly means to refer to his bringing to of the gospel with his use of this word. While the adjective euprostdectis is of the same case and number as the noun it modifies, which is prosphora or presentation, it modifies presentation, and that phrase should be Imagine to mean an acceptable presentation. But the acceptance is of, or from, or even by, it could have been rendered by, the nations to which the gospel is being brought. I would assert that this is why the word order is peculiar, because an adjective usually in Greek accompanies the noun that it modifies, and here it follows the genitive Plural noun, tone ethnon, or the nations. In that manner, saying, so that it be a presentation acceptable by the nations is absolutely fair and very well fits the context of Paul's discussion. There's a similar construction found in Luke. Chapter 4, verse 19, where the phrase aniatan, which is a year, kuriu, which is genitive for Lord, dektan, which is acceptable, it's a more simple form of a word meaning acceptable, is translated the acceptable year of the Lord in the King James Version, expressing a year acceptable to God. Here, the grammatical construction is absolutely similar and describes a presentation acceptable to the nations. Christ offered himself up on behalf of the sins of the children of Israel. And the children of Israel have themselves have nothing to offer God. From Hebrews chapter 10, from verse 12, But this man, meaning Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever them that are sanctified, meaning all the children of Israel. From Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, And walk in love, as Christ has also loved us and has given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savour. Paul is bringing the announcement of this sacrifice made by Christ to the nations. And that is the purpose of the gospel. And Paul hopes that the nations find his presentation of the gospel to be acceptable. Because that's the value of his ministry. Verse 17. Therefore, I have reason to boast in Christ Yahshua of the things pertaining to Yahweh. The word caucasus is a reason to boast and not necessarily a boast by itself. That is properly the word caucamah. Paul used caucasus here. Paul finds in his ministry a reason to boast, but he is not necessarily saying that he is boasting. As Paul advised in 1 Corinthians in chapter 1, in verse 31, just as it is written, he who is boasting in Yahweh, he must boast. Man has no boast. Verse 18, Indeed, I will not venture to speak anything of which Christ has not fashioned through me regarding the compliance of the nations in word and deed. Now, rather than the phrase compl- regarding the compliance, the Codex Vaticanus has speaking for the hearing, speaking for the hearing of the nations in word and deed. In any event, the hearing of the gospel. And the obedience of the hearers were both matters of prophecy for the children of Israel in their time of punishment. From Jeremiah, chapter 31, from the promise of the new covenant, everybody loves to quote verse 31. Let's start at the beginning. We won't read the whole chapter, but we will read a sufficient part of it. Let's start at the beginning because it's all pertinent to a new covenant. Let's start at thirty-one, one. At the same time, saith Yahweh, will I be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Jeremiah chapter 30 and 31 are completely relevant to the new covenant. Thus saith Yahweh, the people which were left of the sword, the people who survived the Assyrian and Babylonian destructions of Israel and Judah. The people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness. Even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest, Yahweh has appeared of old unto me, saying, Yeah, I have loved thee with an everlasting love, therefore with Loving-kindness have I drawn thee. Again I will build thee, and thou shalt be built, O virgin of Israel. Thou shalt again be adorned with thy tabrets, and shalt go forth in the dances of them that make merry. And from verse 7, For thus saith Yahweh, sing with gladness for Jacob, and shout among the chief of the nations. Now. Don't get carried away with this chief of the nations phrase because this chief of the nations phrase is not a reference to non-Israelites. It's a reference to Ephraim. Ephraim was the chief nation of the ten tribes as attested in verse 9 of the same chapter of Jeremiah. This is verse 7. For thus saith Yahweh, Sing with gladness for Jacob and shout, among the chief of the nations. Publish ye, praise ye, and say, O Yahweh, save thy people, the remnant of Israel. Now salvation is in Christ. The announcement is in the gospel, which is to be published among the chief of the nations. Verse 8. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the coasts of the earth. And with them the blind and the lame, the woman with child, and her that travaileth with child together, a great company shall return hither. They shall come with weeping, and with supplications will I lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way, wherein they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel... And Ephraim is my firstborn. Ephraim is the chief of the nations of Israel. Hear the word of Yahweh, O ye nations. That's a reference to the tribes of Israel in their nations, just as we saw in Deuteronomy 32:43. 43. Hear the word of Yahweh. O ye nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He that scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. For Yahweh has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he to save him from his enemies, as it says in Luke. Behold, the days come. Skipping from verses 11 to 31. Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke. Although I was a husband unto them, saith Yahweh, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith Yahweh. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. The entire purpose of the new covenant is to bring the cast off children of Israel back into the obedience of Yahweh. Jeremiah 31 is talking about the compliance of the nations. This is also expressed In Ezekiel chapter 37, which once again explicitly mentions a future and therefore a new covenant, and a repentance from sin as a condition of the fulfillment of that covenant. Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, or nations, whither they be gone, and will gather them on every side, and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king to them all. And they shall no more be two nations. Neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. Neither shall they defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned, and will cleanse them, so that they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And David, my servant, a type for Christ, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one Shepherd, They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them, which Paul calls compliance of the nations here in verse 18, meaning the call to obedience of the nations of Israel in connection with the new covenant verse 25 of Ezekiel 37. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt. And they shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. David being a type for Christ. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them I will, make, I will make future a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. Even though, unlike Jeremiah, it doesn't explicitly say new covenant. It certainly is the new covenant in Christ. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle, also shall be with them. Yeah, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And the heathen, or nations, rejecting the King James interpretation, and the nation shall know that I, Yahweh, do sanctify Israel, when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. Also, according to the words of the prophets, only Israel was ever sanctified by Yahweh. So where it says come out from among them and touch not the unclean, that means come out from among all non-Israelites because they are all unclean. Only Israel was ever sanctified by God. Verse 19, Paul talking about the things which Christ fashioned through him to speak regarding the compliance of the nations, the nations of the children of Israel, in word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of Yahweh, and and there's four differences in the manuscripts there, of the Holy Spirit, of the Spirit. Consequently, for me, from Jerusalem, and in a circuit, as far as Illyrica or Illyricon, to have fulfilled the good message of the anointed. There are many instances of such signs and wonders recorded in the book of Acts in connection with Paul's ministry. Here Paul is not saying that he fulfilled the good message of the anointed in the sense of an overall completion, but only that he fulfilled his purpose in the gospel In these places where he had already traveled, he still had plans to travel elsewhere, such as to Rome and to Spain, as he mentions in the balance of this chapter. Illyricon, or Illyricum, was the Greek and Roman name for ancient Illyria, which was west of Macedonia in northern Greece, along what we call now the Adriatic Sea, the coast, and at this time, it was a Roman province, and it bordered the Adriatic Sea opposite Italy. It can be um, roughly equated to modern-day Albania, Bosnia, and whatever lies north, Croatia. Albania, Bosnia, and Croatia, of course, the population is certainly different today but Albania, Bosnia, and Croatia would roughly be modern or ancient Illyria. One of the primary tribes of the Illyrians were the Dardanians. And the Dardanians were a branch of the ancient Dardans from Troy. The presence of these Dardans in Illyria was acknowledged by Greek historians. Through the time of Procopius, who wrote in the sixth century AD, several several notable Roman emperors were Dardans, including Constantine the Great on his father's side, because his mother was a British princess, and the Emperor Justinian. The Dardans were kin to the Romans who according to all ancient accounts had also descended from the Trojans. We have asserted in a paper at Christiania that the Dardans themselves were Israelites of the tribe of Judah in a paper entitled Classical Records of Trojan Roman Judah. While Luke did accompany Paul to Macedonia, and that is recorded in Acts chapter 16. When Paul and Silas departed from Philippi, Luke had remained behind there with Lydia, which is fully evident from Acts chapter 16, verse 40. From much of the further records of Paul's journeys in Greece, which Luke provides, Luke is not with Paul, and therefore he must have collected accounts and compiled them later and they are very fragmentary accounts. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is in Thessalonica, which is west of Philippi, but there is no mention in the book of Acts of Paul's visiting Illyria, which is much further west from Thessalonica. Paul is recorded as having passed through Macedonia on two other occasions in Acts chapters 19 and 20, but Luke is still not with him and the records of Paul's journeys are fragmentary. Statements in Paul's epistles help to piece them together. At some point in these travels, Acts chapter 17, 18, 19, Paul must have crossed northern Greece into Illyria. Luke joins Paul once again in Acts chapter 20 in the Troad, and Luke had come from Philippi to the Troad in that instance. And from the Troad, the final journey to Jerusalem was begun. It is evident in places that Luke may have seen Paul in the interim, for there were several years between the events of Acts 16 and Acts 20. But there are no records of such a meeting in Acts. Before Paul crossed into Macedonia, he was prevented by the Holy Spirit from preaching the gospel in the cities, the Greek cities of Asia. But he nevertheless preached in Asia later on. This seems to be in fulfillment of a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 12, which says that Yahweh would save the tents of Judah first. The Dardans of Macedonia and Illyria were indeed of the tribe of Judah. And although not all Macedonians and Illyrians may have been Dardans, a good portion of them certainly were. On the other hand, the cities of Asia were for the most part populated with the descendants of the Israelite Phoenicians and Dorian Greeks, along with Chapethite Ionians, Shemetic Lydians, and others, as well as some Romans and Macedonians, but primarily they were populated from the other tribes. Romans fifteen twenty, And so, being ambitious to announce the good message, not where Christ had been addressed, so that I not build upon another's foundation, but just as it is written, to whom it has not been reported concerning him, they shall see. And those that have not heard, they will understand. The Greek word, honomaste, is translated, had been addressed here. It's from a verb, onomazo, Strong's number 3687, which is literally to name or speak of by name. The word has several idiomatic uses and a sense that is difficult to express in a word or even in a few words in English. Here I strove for a translation that is both literal and concordant. I may have written, not where Christ had conducted his business, or not where Christ had conducted his ministry, and that would properly render the word in an idiomatic sense, and that's the sense which Paul most likely intended. Ludell and Scott explain some of the idiomatic uses of the word. Paul compared his introduction of the gospel in those places where he preached to the task of a builder laying a foundation. In his first epistle to the Corinthians, in chapter 3, he qualified his analogy further, where he said, from verse 10, According to the grace of God which is given unto me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds thereon. And in that instance, he's referring to Apollos, who came to minister to the Corinthians following Paul, after Paul left Corinth. And Paul goes on to say, let every man take heed how he builds thereupon. For another foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Therefore, we can determine Paul's meaning here, that he did not have a desire to preach the gospel where it had already been preached for so long, where the ministry of Christ, had been conducted, but rather Paul's ministry from the start had been commissioned for those who had not yet heard the gospel. From Acts chapter 9, where Hananias speaks of Paul speaking to Christ, Hananias replied, Prince, I have heard from many concerning this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and thus. He has authority from the high priests to bind all those being called by your name. But the prince said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel by me, who is to bear my name before both the nations and kings of the sons of Israel. And of course, they were not in Palestine where Christ had conducted his ministry. For I shall indicate to him how much it is necessary for him to suffer on behalf of my name. Here in verse twenty one, Paul quotes from Isaiah fifty two, fifteen. Here is Isaiah chapter fifty two, so that we may see the context which Paul intends from verse one. Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion, put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for henceforth there shall come no more into thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. Yahweh only sanctified the children of Israel. And circumcision is of the heart. And Yahweh performs that circumcision where he says, I will circumcise their hearts. Shake thyself from the dust. Arise and sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus saith Yahweh, ye have sold yourselves for naught, and ye shall be redeemed without money. For thus saith Yahweh God, my people went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian, meaning the Assyrian captivity of later times, and the Assyrian oppressed them without cause, two captivities being referred to, Now therefore, what have I here, saith Yahweh, that my people is taken away for naught? They that rule over them, make them the howl, saith Yahweh. And my name continually every day is blasphemed. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore they shall know in that day that I am he that does speak. Behold, it is I. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, thy God reigneth. Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice, and the voice together they shall sing, for they shall see eye to eye, when Yahweh shall bring again Zion. Break forth into joy, sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem, for Yahweh has comforted and redeemed his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem, I'm sorry. Yahweh has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. But that salvation is explicitly, as this is stating explicitly, that salvation is explicitly for the children of Israel. Discussing Acts chapter 13, here last year, it'll be a year and about eight days, a year to the date, it was demonstrated that the references to all the ends of the earth are also references to the scattered children of Israel, citing Isaiah chapter 49, where that is, is a picture that is drawn quite explicitly. Depart ye, depart ye, go ye out from thence, touch no unclean. Let's strike that word same. It was added to the King James. It does not belong there. Touch no unclean. Go ye out of the midst of her. Be ye clean that bear the vessels of Yahweh. For ye shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight, for Yahweh will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rearward. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled, and be very high. And as many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations, and kings shall shut their mouths at him. These are the nations that Paul was commissioned to go to the nations and kings of the people of Israel. For that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. That's what Paul quoted here. And he's not taking it out of context. Paul's mission, as originally stated by Christ, was to bear his name before the nations and kings of the sons of Israel. Here it says, So he shall sprinkle many nations, and kings shall shut their mouths at him. Paul brought the message of that sprinkling to those nations of Israel. The sprinkling of many nations is the same sanctification of the dispersed children of Israel prophesied in Ezekiel chapter 37, which we've just read, which was promised in direct connection with the new covenant. Verse 22, on which account I also, on account that he had to go to all these other places, I also had often been hindered in coming to you, meaning to the Romans. Paul attests that he had never been to Rome. But it must be noted that there were already at least several Christian assemblies at Rome, which is evident in Romans chapter 16. The Edict of Claudius, under which Priscilla and Aquila were expelled from Rome, along with many others of the Judeans, was issued about 49 A.D. It's mentioned in Acts chapter 18, verse 2. And this very epistle, which we are reading here, was written from the Troad, circa 57 A.D. So already there were Christians in Rome for many years before Paul had ever gotten there, and before he ever wrote this epistle, Neither do the records indicate that Peter was in Rome before Paul was, since both Luke and Peter I'm sorry, since both Luke and Paul attest to Peter's being in Antioch, and Peter later attests that he is in Babylon. we can't say Peter never went to Rome, but there's no record of it. The arrival of the gospel in Rome is a mystery, but the gospel was certainly there prior to any record of it in Scripture. The late Roman Catholic claims are ridiculous that Peter and Paul were the first to preach there. That can easily be shown to be wrong. And they're based on very late writings, 3rd, 4th century writings. I don't know if there's anything earlier than that, but there's nothing earlier than Paul. There's nothing From a contemporary time, attesting to the presence of Peter and Paul in Rome, Roman Christianity was already quite old when Paul got there, several decades old. Verse 23, but now, no longer having a place in these regions, and having a longing to come to you for many years... Paul felt that his gospel mentioned had been, mission had been fulfilled wherever he had already preached, which included all of Syria and Italia and Greece. He was also aware, while preaching in these other places, that there had already been Christians in Rome for many years. While Paul felt it important to travel to Rome, to edify the assemblies there, by no means was he the founder or even a secondary founder of any monolithic church there. Catholic claims are absolutely contrary to biblical context. Verse 24, perhaps as I journey into Spain, and here the the majority text adds the words, I will come to you so they appear in a King James. But those words are not in... It, it's a clarification of what Paul's saying, but the words are not in any manuscript. Perhaps as I journey into Spain, therefore I expect to be passing across to see you and by you to be escorted there. If, however, of you first, I am somewhat satisfied. Now, the Greek word, say, fei, a-mahi, Psalms number 2300, is translated simply as to see here, passing across to see you. And it's used by Paul in his 14 surviving epistles only this one time. The word actually has a stronger sense. It means to view as a spectator, to view attentively, to watch, or even to review. The Greek word propempo can be either to send before, to send on, to send forward. This is Strong's number 4311. Or it can mean to escort. Here, the text has the preposition hupo. And therefore, I have interpreted it as by you to be escorted, because hupo means by or below. But the 3rd century papyrus, P46, and the Cotuses Vaticanus and Claromontanus Montanus have apo instead of hupo. Apo means from. So it may have been more proper to write from you to be sent forth, because those manuscripts also have great authority. Paul intentioned going to Spain to preach the gospel. There were many Romans and others from the Greco-Roman world in Spain at this time, but the principal inhabitants of Spain were Gauls, Galatahi, whom the Greeks also called Celts, and the Iberians, who were the descendants of the ancient Phoenicians, and the Greeks often referred to the people as Celt-Iberians, because they were all mixed together. All of these are from among the dispersions of the ancient children of Israel, there are writings found, especially among the adherents of British Israelism, such as the discredited but so-called lost chapter of Acts, that assert that Paul did go to Spain, and that he even preached in Britain. The lost chapter of Acts and these other writings are grounded in fiction, and they should indeed be discredited. The last chapter of Acts is ridiculous when compared to Scripture, and it needs to be thrown out of identity Christianity. Now, there are rumors quite old that Paul did go to Spain. They date to the time of Eusebius. They are rumors. Eusebius began those rumors with an interpretation of 2 Timothy chapter 4 that I am persuaded is a bad interpretation. I discussed that at length last year here at the conclusion of the series on the book of Acts. The rumors are based upon a contention that Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, something which happened not long after he wrote this epistle to the Romans, and that Paul was sent to Rome and was subsequently released and traveled for an extended period of time before he was arrested again and executed in Rome. But there is no support for any of this in his epistles, elsewhere in Scripture, or in any contemporary writings. In reality, Paul was arrested in Jerusalem shortly after writing this epistle. He was sent to Rome, and he was under arrest there for a couple of years as Lucifer, as Luke attests in the closing chapter of Acts. After that period, Paul was executed by Nero, as Paul himself had feared and even expressed in 2 Timothy chapter 4. But Paul was never released from Rome, and he never went to Spain. Verse 25. But now I travel to Jerusalem in service to the saints. They of Macedonia and Achaia had been glad to make a certain contribution for the needy of the saints who were in Jerusalem. This contribution for the poor of the apostles in Jerusalem was the reason for Paul's final journey there. And it is discussed at length in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and also in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. It is mentioned again in Acts chapter 24, where Paul defends himself in relation to his arrest. And he says at verse 17, Now, after many years, I came bringing alms to my nation and offerings, the certain contribution to the needy of the saints who were in Jerusalem. Indeed, they were well pleased, and their debtors they are, for if the nation share with them, the things of the Spirit, then they are obliged to minister to them in the things of the flesh. Concerning himself and his right to be supported by the assemblies which he ministered to, Paul elaborated on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where he said in a lengthier analogy from verse 11, and I'm only going to read the analogy in part, If we have sown the things of the Spirit in you, is it too great if we should reap your fleshly things? If others of authority are partaking of you, still not more we? But then, striving to set a greater example, Paul goes on to say, Rather, we have not used this authority, but we cover all ourselves, in order that we should not give any hindrance to the good message of the anointed. In other words, you don't preach for money, right? Do you not know that those who are in sacred things are laboring from of the temple they eat? Those who are attending at the altar take a share with the, with the altar. Also, in that manner, has the prince appointed those announcing the good message from of the good message to live? But I have indulged in not one of those things. However, Paul was at other times supported by other assemblies, as he wrote later in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I have deprived other assemblies, taking provisions for your service, and being present with you in wanting, I had burdened no one. Indeed, my need had been fulfilled by the brethren who came from Macedonia, and in everything I have kept and will keep myself unburdensome to you. Paul's preference, even though the Macedonians had supported him for his ministry in Corinth, Paul's preference was to work for his own bread with his own hands, as he professed in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. However, it is clear that it is not; it was not always possible for him to do that. Verse 28. Now this being accomplished, and this prophet having been assured to them, and the word is literally, fruit, I will depart by you towards Spain. It is telling that Paul, being the apostle to the nations, desired to go to Rome and then on to Spain. If Paul simply wanted to go to non-Jews, to Gentiles, as the mainstream churches interpret the word, He had many other choices in Africa, in the South, in Arabia, in Egypt, in Ethiopia, in Libya, in the East, in India. Yet Paul wanted to go to the West, to Europe. The areas to the West in Europe are the places to where may be traced the dispersions of Israel from the earliest times. This was the appointed place. That is not a coincidence. Paul's mission was not to go merely to any non-Jewish nation, but to certain nations, which themselves had sprung from the seed of Abraham, which is demonstrable both historically and here throughout Paul's epistles, which I pray that we've been elucidating thoroughly since we began this presentation of Paul's epistle to the Romans. Paul's knowledge of history and scripture uniquely qualified him for that task. Verse 29, And I know that coming to you I shall come in the fullness of praise of Christ. The majority text, and therefore the King James version, has I shall come in the fullness of the praise of the good message of Christ. There are other readings. Declaro Montanus. Moreover, I entreat you, brethren, and some manuscripts want brethren here, through our prince, Yahshua Christ, and through the love of the Spirit, to assist me in prayers to Yahweh on my behalf, in order that I am delivered from those of disobedience in Judea, and that my service that is to Jerusalem. May be acceptable to the saints. Dakotas' Vaticanists and Claromontanists have a different word here for, than service. They have dorophoria or gift bearing, which is a more obscure word. In Acts chapter 19, after certain events which happened in Ephesus, we read from verse 21. After these things were ended, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, which is the lower part of Greece, to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. Paul apparently had this epistle written while he was in the Troad, just before departing for his final trip to Jerusalem. Then, while en route to Jerusalem stopping in Miletus, Paul said to the elders of the Christians of the Assemblies of Asia, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 20, from verse 22, And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesses in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. Or await me. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. So we see that Paul indeed knew that he was going to Rome after going to Jerusalem, and even feared being arrested while he was in Jerusalem. Both his aspiration to visit Rome and his fear of imprisonment were fulfilled when he was sent to Rome in bonds. Verse 32, that with joy I am coming to you through the will of Yahweh, that I may have rest with you." And the Mon- montanus codex means, and I will be refreshed with you. There are other minor variations to the reading in the other codices. Towards the end of his life, Paul did seem to find some rest in Rome, as Luke attests to the end of Acts, where he states in Acts chapter 28. And Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house, And received all that came in unto him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. Verse 33. Now Yahweh may be at peace with you all, truly. And that word truly is from the Greek word amen, which is really a a Hebrew word originally. It's wanting in some of the manuscripts here. This concludes our presentation of Romans chapter 15. Tomorrow night we hope to present something we are calling Primordial to Sea Line, a collection of some of the pagan myths of antiquity which we believe represent ancient truths in relation to our theology. Next Friday, Yahweh willing, we shall conclude our lengthy presentation of Paul's epistle to the Romans. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening and good night.